This is Salt and Spine. This is a book that I felt like I had to write for myself as a way to make sense of my dad's passing and what the last, you know, 30 plus years has meant. And it's culminated in this, the person I am today, which is a person that loves, loves, loves cooking and is absolutely obsessed with vegetables. And I don't know if I would have had that love and that deep, deep obsession with vegetables had it not been for my father. Hi there, I'm Brian Hogan-Stewart, and you're listening to Salt and Spine, Stories Behind Cookbooks. I'm so excited to share our conversation today with all of you. We are welcoming back a friend to the podcast, Hetty Louie McKinnon, who uh, joined us previously virtually during the pandemic to discuss her uh, then new book, To Asia With Love, which is a beautifully photographed by Hetty uh, cookbook and part memoir. And now we're here to talk about her latest cookbook, which is called Tender Heart. And uh, Hetty's works are really personal. This is perhaps the most personal of all of them. It is, of course, a cookbook, but it's also really a memoir and a story of her relationship and the impact of her father, who uh, died when she was young and was a vegetable monger, a vegetable wholesaler in her home country of Australia. This is a beautiful book. It's over 500 pages, 22 chapters. Of course, like with all of Hetty's work, it's vegetable driven. She's a vegetarian. And here we have 22 chapters where she really explores creative, inventive, craveable takes on vegetables. We have a couple featured recipes on our Substack from the book this week. So if you don't own the book yet, definitely check out saltandspine.com, where we have a beautiful uh, char siu style eggplant, as well as Hetty's one of Hetty's takes on ramen. It's a carrot peanut satay ramen inspired by the smells of satay from her childhood. We have a wonderful conversation today. We're talking mostly about this book and how Hetty really tackled this project of writing what Diana Henry called a memoir through recipes. Uh, it's a book about loss and grief, but it's also so full of joy. I mean, you'll see if you take a look at the cover that uh, it's hard not to smile. It's, it's a face made of vegetables, and we'll talk about that too. So um, I'm so excited that Hetty was able to join us in person for this conversation. So let's head now to San Francisco, where Hetty Louie McKinnon joined us to talk cookbooks. Hi, Hetty. Thank you so much for joining us. Hi, Ryan. It's an absolute pleasure to be with you again. It's so great, yes, to have you here in person. And welcome to San Francisco. Yeah, it's so great to actually see you in person. Yes, so fun. Not on a screen. Right, exactly. Um, And we're here to talk about your latest cookbook, your fifth, Tender Heart, mm-hmm. um, which is just beautiful. It's Thank massive. You. It's yep. over 500 pages. Photography, which you did, mm-hmm. stunning. So can't wait to to talk more about it. But let's start just with the concept, yeah. right? You you dedicate this book to your father. It really mm-hmm. is a book in in so many ways about your father. Yep. Um, before we get to sort of how that came to be, tell us a little bit about your father, who he was. I know mm-hmm. he, he migrated to Sydney as a teen and, yep. and became uh, a produce wholesaler. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. So my father um, came to Australia f- as a teenager. Um, to study business, apparently, but I'm not okay. quite sure what that was. That's what I was told. Um, and he came with his father and he pretty much started working straight away with um, my uncle, actually, my who is called Gujong. Okay. Um, and he actually lived next door to us. Okay. Almost everything I remember about my father is 
about him with vegetables or or fruit and vegetables. Um, he was a banana monger. Okay. So he worked in a wholesale import export business um, called Wing On, and they they specialize in bananas. But through that, his work, he brought home just an abundance of you know fresh produce. So I mean, I don't know if that's as an adult, you know, you remember back and you romanticize bits of your childhood. Sure. But most of my memories about my father are, you know, around just bringing home really delicious, like amazing, amazing produce. Um, and also, like, I don't think I've ever eaten produce like that again. And I don't know if or that's ever been, since. you know, ever since I, I, uh, I still say, I think I, I say somewhere in the book, I'm still, I'm still seeking the apricots of my youth. Yeah. Um, because it was so abundant and so delicious. And not something I really appreciated at the time, of yeah. course. But he was very, uh, he was a big personality. He had a loud voice. Um, you know, he was kind of tall for a Chinese man. And people would always talk about his personality. And he, he spoke kind of his special brand of English that wasn't, wasn't quite fluent. Uh-huh. Um, and, uh, you know, I sort of when I th- when I remember some of the things he said, it was quite funny. He um, I used to go shopping with him sometimes at the shop at the mall, sure. um, shopping center we call them in Australia. Sure. And when he would want to ask a question, he would say, "Hey, lady." And I remember being a kid and being mortified, uh-huh. like he just called someone a lady. That's really rude. But for him, he thought that was being you know polite. Sure. Um, yeah. So, yeah, he's, uh, and he really, he worked really hard. He loved the West. Like, unlike my mom, who is very traditional and still remains that to this day, uh-huh. my dad loved living in the West. He loved, like, Western foods and bringing home, like, just simple things like orange juice, which is, like, not something that we would normally drink in, yeah. in a, a Cantonese household, and cheese, like, craft singles and, yeah, like, just cold meats that you could put on sandwiches like those things were all felt very foreign to us like they're very everyday in the west but when you grow up in a very traditional household those things are quite unusual um and so it just felt like he was our our he was our connection to the west Uh in many ways you write about orange juice either you or one of your siblings taking a liking to it and then oh, you yeah. bring it home every day for like the following exactly. week exactly right? that's my sister actually sister. she okay. she mentioned that she liked orange juice uh-huh. and he would just bring like a whole carton home yeah. every day not that we ever drank the whole carton um and here yeah, he would bring he, afternoon snack was his meal of the day so he would you know get meat pies and uh, apple turnovers and pastries from sure. the local deli and um, the local bakery, and he would just he would make us these sandwiches, these bread rolls, um, almost like you'd call them in America a hero or something, uh-huh, you know, yeah. like a, a a dense roll, and right. he would fill it with like vegetable like salads, and then he would have this iceberg lettuce that he'd just shaved so fine with a knife, and it's one of the things that my siblings and I talk about. It was like our favorite um, okay. of the afternoon snacks. Sure. Um, and, and it was all about the texture and the, the, the texture of the lettuce, the iceberg yeah. lettuce, so crunchy. And, um, yeah, so he was just this, um, you know, in my memory, he's a, he was a bold, you know, kind, generous person, which went along with his job, having, you know, an abundance of vegetables and fruits, yeah. which he happily shared with everyone we knew, neighbors, friends, relatives, our doctor, uh-huh. family doctor. Uh-huh. And, um, uh, 
yeah, so it just, yeah, the name Tenderheart really just, that's the name that kind of I thought about when I thought about writing this book. So Yeah, so did the, the name come early on in the process? Yeah, it did. It did. It did. Yeah. I mean, the word tender kept coming back to okay, me. Okay, sure. And obviously, tender is a word that you, is used to describe cooking vegetables. Right. Um, so that really stuck with me. And there were like maybe a couple of iterations. Obviously, there is already a book called Tender by Nigel Slater. Right. So um, I couldn't do that. And and then I thought, actually, um, you know, the cover of the book, I don't know if everyone's seen it yet, but the cover of the book is a vegetable face. Right. And the origins of that actually came from an early edition of um, my magazine called Peddler, which is an independent journal, food journal that I had started in 2017. And I think in, must have been the second issue called the childhood issue, we actually made a face and it was the first time I wrote about my dad ever. Yeah. And um, that was my first experience about remembering him in the context of food, actually. And so that that face was called the banana guy because it had a banana mm. as a mouth, okay. as the Australian cover has. Um, and so we, yeah, in terms of like that, we just, you know, that was uh, the inspiration for, so in terms of like tender heart, it's almost like we turned this vegetable face into a person. Sure. And the person is my dad. Yeah. So, yeah. And and when you talk about these memories, mm-hmm. he he passed away when you were relatively young. Yeah. You were a teenager. You were 15. Yep, 15. So all of these memories are sort of early memories. They are. are rooted in that time period of your life. I mean memories are so hard, Brian. Mm-hmm. I mean we we lose memory. They they change. Memories mm-hmm. change with time and yeah. who we are now as we evolve as people. We kind of shape those memories differently, and I'm conscious of that. And in the start of the book, I I write about that, like I write about how these are my memories and my vignettes formed around the in the context that I was a 15 year old child. So right. I didn't, I never knew my father as an adult. Right. So um, these are the memories of it formed in the head of a, a kid who lost their father. Mm-hmm. Um, but I really did. As I worked on the book, um, you know, initially I thought I would do a whole heap of research about who he was and when he came to Australia and kind of the time that it was back then. Sure. And um, I read a bunch of books from um, people of a similar time that had immigrated to Australia from um, Jungsan, which is where my family's from in the okay. south of China. But then I just felt like I really wanted to write more yeah. personally and and make it more intimate. Um and also, like those memories, as I said, they're fading, and mm. you know, you get to a point where you can no longer remember their voice. Mm-hmm. And so, I wanted to write these small little vignettes um, as a just to encapsulate, you know, that that memory for me and and my children, and sure. um, touch on those feelings more. I mean, I think I write a lot about emotions and feelings in my. In my food, I've never, I don't know if I've ever acknowledged that before, okay. but the feelings um, are very related to yeah. how you feel when you cook mm-hmm. and the sensations that food give you. So I think that, yeah, that felt important to me to capture that in this book. And you, so you wrote for the first time about your father in this 2017 mm-hmm. piece you did yeah. for Peddler. Yeah. Um, you write in, in this book that for much of your life, you only dared to remember that yeah. it, was, it was too raw. How did you sort of decide to write that 2017 book? How did that then become 
this cookbook. Like it, it feels to me like so much of your career has sort of been building towards this book yeah. too. You know, the photography influence that I know stems mm-hmm. from your father, yeah. which you shot all your own photography. How mm-hmm. did that did that happen naturally? Was that a conscious decision? It sounds like. Um, it was pretty natural. I it mean, I true, yeah. I photographed to Asia with Love um, on film, mm-hmm. partly using my dad's camera. Right. Um, I don't know. Like some of these, as you get older, you just there's these things that you feel like you need to do, uh-huh. and you become um, quite dogmatic about the way you want something to be. And and luckily, I have like some photography skills. So I'm sure. able to pull off. I think so. Yes, I'm, I'm able to pull off. You know, decent looking photos. Um, and I don't. I don't have a stylist either. So the food is really when it's cooked, and you know, I take a photo, and that's how it is in the book, which lends a beautiful rawness to it. I think people really enjoy it. But in terms of writing about my father, I mean, it's hard to do. Mm. I mean, that introduction was gut wrenching at times. Yeah. Um, and and it was heavily edited by myself. Um. It's really the first time I've written so much about him and written about the impact of his death on me in particular. I mean, when you lose a parent as a teenager, I remember, you know, early on, you just, it's a nuisance. Mm. Like many things are when you're a teenager. Sure. It's a nuisance, right? So I remember he died on New Year's Eve and it was during the summer holidays in Australia. And I remember like, this is like sounds really quite perverted, but I remember thinking, thank God I'm not at school. I don't have to deal with people mm. finding out that my father died. And mm. when I went back to school a month later, it would have passed. And it's not something I, it's, you know, the immediacy of a, losing a parent would have passed. So, you know, and all those feelings, and I felt guilty, you know, now, like as an adult, I feel guilty about feeling that way. Mm. And a lot of those suppressed emotions, you know, when you come from a Chinese family, Death is taboo, and it's not something you openly talk about. It's not something that you you, you don't talk about the death per se. Sure. You know, you sometimes talk. We like I will talk to my mum about memories of my dad, uh-huh. but it's not like we talk about the trauma of losing someone. Uh-huh. It's all a, for us in particular. It was really about getting through that time. And I think we all assume certain roles in that. Like I'm talking about when I say we, I'm talking about me and my siblings. Um, because my mom was in her kind of almost mid forties, not even in mid forties. Okay. She lost her husband. Yeah. And she'd come to Australia to marry my dad. So okay. like she had not really had any experience of living in the West without my dad. Sure. And he did everything for her, very traditional Cantonese marriage. And she didn't she never worked outside of the home. So there's actually an essay in the book called um, The Reinvention of My Mother. Yeah. I mean, she had to reinvent herself and learn, relearn to live, as you know, many people have to do in life. Um, she had to learn to live without the person that made all the money in the house. She had to um, you know, go and buy groceries for the first time, mm. go buy fruit and vegetables. And that's something she actually said to me, and I remember her saying that, like, Wow, I've never had to go to a grocery, like to fruit, a, fr- a grocer before, sure. a fruit, a vegetable grocer before. Yeah. Um, she had to learn to go to the bank, had to learn to catch public transport because she didn't drive. Right. So for me, you know, my sister was my oldest, my older siblings, assist, my sister, she's seven years older. She was working. My brother had just finished high school. Okay. I was still in school. And so for me, I kind of assumed, I mean, it could have gone both ways. I mean, I could have gone off the rails or, but I chose the other side, which was, 
to hold everything together so I didn't cause any more stress for mm. my mum. Yeah. So there's this Cantonese term called guai, which means good. Okay. Are you being good? Are you being good? And that's like a really, it was a really big thing for my mum that, you know, the, that our, her kids were guai. She asked my kids that when she calls them on FaceTime. Uh-huh. So it continues intergenerational. Um, but I really threw myself into doing that, just focus on doing well at school. And then when I went to university, I, I, um, I lived at home. And so I just spent a lot of time with her, you know, yeah. like just holding things together and helping her do certain things. But now I look back and I'm just so grateful for those times. I think that I'd never realized it, but I think maybe those years with her really informed the person I am today and the things that I'm interested in and just being able to cook some of the things and watching her cook some of the the meals that we ate together. Um, that's something that my older siblings didn't really have. Sure. And it ends up that I'm the one that's interested in, the most interested in food. Sure. You know? So, um, yeah, I mean, in, yeah, I can't remember what the original question was, Brian. I've just gone off on a tangent. No, that, that's, that's great. And it's, it's hard, right, as a teenager to mm. sort of see that. But now in this reinvention essay, too, when you reflect on that and you write about, you know, she's a, she's a quiet spoken person, mm. but behind that facade, there's, you say, a fire, resilience, dog yep. determination, that, that sort of strength that now as you're writing this book and reflecting back as an adult, you say is really, something that she's a role model to you. She's what yeah. you, that strength you want to see reflected in, in your children. Yeah. Yeah. So, so that side of losing your father, seeing her reinvention really impacted you quite significantly. Too. Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I say all the time, and even my husband says to me, like, your mom's like the most incredible person I know, just uh-huh. because of, you know, like people can do, be outwardly, you know, outspoken about the great things that they do in life. Yeah. And then they're the, just the people that just do you know, the everyday things, the things that you have to do to pick yourself up and keep going and not expect acknowledgement for it. These yeah. are, but just, you know, sometimes these everyday things, these were big hurdles for a woman of her situation. And, you know, none of thing, these things were her fault. Like she right. didn't have the opportunity to, to work. She didn't speak English. She had to, you know, finish school at 14 to try to escape communist China and all right. those things. I mean, you know, this. She did what she needed to do, and it was. It's in, inspiring to think about, and she continues to do that. You know, she is really quietly spoken, and we don't, as a family, outwardly um, acknowledge success that much. We just keep going and keep, you know, keep sure, keep keep going, really. Yeah. And I think that does offer me a lot of inspiration. But yeah, I mean, I in terms of like writing that introduction, it was. He went through many iterations and I wrote a lot. And some of it was, I just wrote about things that I remembered and feelings that I had and, and anger, which is maybe something I've not spoken about. And it's not in the book, Mm -hmm. but I felt angry about the process. Um, I felt angry that he died and I wondered, um, you know, my dad died of cancer. I don't, I don't include that in the book. Um, And someone actually asked me whether I want to talk about it. And I said, I didn't include how he died in the book because I wanted it to make it uh, a joyous collection about him and it's not the how, but it's kind of how the effects of that, you know, what happened. So, um, but yeah, I mean, he died of cancer on, during the holiday period and there was really, 
no attention at the hospital. And I often wondered to myself, like now as an adult, I wondered to myself, was that because my mum couldn't speak English and nobody thought it was urgent to get him the type of care that he needed? Yeah. It could be completely a fabrication on my part. But these are things that as a fairly rational adult, yeah. I sit and, and meditate over and meditate over, you know, what could have been, um, how, you know, my own guilt as the, you know, as I mentioned, the feelings that I had. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's a lot. And yeah. to think about, I think about the, what could have been a lot. Yeah. You know, what he missed out on and what I missed out on and what my children missed out on. Yeah. Um, because I also never knew my, gra- I didn't have a, a strong grandfather influence in my life. Like okay. my dad's dad passed away before we were born. And my mum's dad passed away when I was a kid. And I, I remember his death actually quite, it was the first time someone that was close to me died. Uh-huh. I felt like death was always this, um, like this gray cloud that hung over my childhood a little bit. Yeah. I remember like having nightmares about my really my grandfather dying uh-huh. and wearing black and having a black ribbon in my hair. Okay. And um that I, I kind of thought about that a lot. And then my uncle, my mum's brother, was very, very sick when I was young and there was also that and he had this kind of major heart bypass surgery on my eleventh birthday. And okay. there was also that fear of him him dying. So th- that was a fear and after my dad passed, it kind of passed. You know, that fear, mm. it kind of just being like, well, some, as someone that close to me has just passed away, like, what can you do? You know, huh. um, those thoughts kind of went away as something scary, but is just became just a part of life. Yeah. You know, um, that acceptance that people die yeah. and you have to learn to live with it somehow. Right. Which, you know, learning to live with that somehow, as I say it so flippantly, is uh, something that is a lifelong, it's a lifelong process. Right. You know, it doesn't make, it, it never becomes easier. You know, when people say oh, it becomes easier, it doesn't become easier, it just, it becomes a part of who you are. Mm-hmm. And that's what I say, it becomes a part of your soul. And for me, it's probably shaped the person I am and the way I navigate the world. Mm-hmm. Um as a person that still really wants to, you know, really wants my both my parents to be proud of me sure. in some way. Sure. And so that kind of shapes the, the decisions I make and the way I, in, even in my job, the way I write about food is, is somehow very related to that, I think. Yeah. Yeah, and you, you used the phrase just now that this is a joyous collection mm. of recipes and we're talking about, you know, major loss, about yeah. grief. You, you do open the book with, I think, a really poignant quote from Francis Weller about grief and love our sisters yeah. you know, woven together from the beginning. And I know some of the, the um, press you've received around the book, some of the accolades speak to this, like they're mm-hmm. like vice wrote a wonderful yeah. um, yes, it was review of the book, right. Yeah. And talked about how we often, I think, see cookbook authors, food writers want to sort of speak to childhood memories, yeah. to memories of their parents, memories of their grandparents. But I think what you do here in Tenderheart is is such a unique balance of that grief and and love. It's not it it's not a sad book, but it it is very much rooted in that grief in that yeah. loss. So as you were writing this, how did you sort of find that right balance where you're telling this incredibly personal and impactful story of the 
the loss and the impact of your father mm. and how he shaped you as a cook and, and a vegetable lover. Yeah. And then also have it be a book that, you know, I open to any page and just yeah. feel so compelled to want to cook that recipe. Right. Yeah. That That's such a unique balance that you had to, to work with. Yeah. I mean, I think that it is a great, I mean, uh, that's why I really love that Vice um, review because it really touched upon you know, the difference between just writing um, about memories, but then actually how do we make this is a cookbook? Right. You know, and I'm, I'm cognizant all the time, this is a cookbook. But for me, there is no cookbook without stories. Mm -hmm. There is no recipe at all without stories. So stories really shape the way I approach food and the way I, sh the way I approach writing a book and writing recipes. To me, it's just as important as almost what's in what's on the plate. Sure, it's what gives what's on the plate flavor. You know, that's what I often yeah, say. Yeah, context. The yeah. context. Um, so I'm very, I'm always thinking about that. But I used, you know, this story um, was very healing for me in terms of just being allowing myself to think about my dad, and in giving myself that license and that freedom to think about him. Um, I kind of he kind of came back to me. You know, he I. I can reconnected with him and his joyous spirit and his enthusiasm for life mm -hmm. and his his vivacity and I I just took that energy and just put it into all the food um and it, into all the recipes into all the flavors and you know it's it's amazing where you find inspiration like I never thought I would write a book about my dad sure. and yeah. the death of my dad in yeah. a book in a cookbook uh -huh. no less but I think that, you know, if we really are truthful with ourselves, I mean, when I write a book in particular, because it's, it always needs to have a backbone and always needs to have a story right. that feels really true to who I am right, right now. And right now, this is a book that I felt like I had to write for myself as a way to make sense of my dad's passing and what the last, you know, 30 plus years has meant. Yeah. And it's culminated in this, the person I am today, which is a person that loves, loves, loves cooking and is absolutely obsessed with vegetables. And I don't know if I would have had that love and that deep, deep obsession with vegetables had it not been for my father. Maybe I would have, I don't know, but that's, this is what I have and this is what I'm working with. Um, and it was just the most, I mean, I, I use the word joy to describe this book because that's what I think it evokes Yeah. from the cover to all the recipes, to the vibrancy of the photos, um, just to the, the minimalist, um, look of the photos. Like I wanted everything to be really stripped back and, mm -hmm. um, take away all the props and have just plain backgrounds right. and the focus is all on the vegetables and the food yeah. um, on the plate. and. I just think it just feels like a book that celebrates life. And yeah. I think if I'm going to remember my father, that's, that's the way I want to remember him. So. Yeah. Could you have a more joyful cover than this? I, <laughs> I don't mean, think so. It's so, you, you can't help but smile <laughs> exactly. when you look at this vegetable face, right? Yeah, I mean, all of that, you, you refer to this really as your vegetable origin story. Mm -hmm. that's, yes. that's how you became the vegetable connoisseur that, that people yeah. love you for today. You said when you, or you write in the book that when you were putting the book together, you did not struggle to decide which vegetables to feature, right? So the, the mm. book is categorized with chapters around different yes. vegetables, not yes. by seasonality or by meal or anything, but by 
vegetables yep. and you said those are your your favorite. Yeah. So that was easy to choose. It really I was. I could imagine with 500 plus pages, it wasn't too hard, right? Oh, or were there I mean, things you like regret leaving so, out? I don't regret. <laughs> okay. I, I'm not, not a regretful person, okay. but of course there are vegetables that are not included. Right. People have been saying to me, I didn't even know 22 vegetables existed. And hence why we need tender wow. heart, <laughs> right, because exactly. people actually don't think that there are 22 vegetables. Wow, there are so many more. There are yeah. so <laughs> many more. I mean, there's no corn chapter. We, I ended up writing a corn chapter, which um, became the pre-order bonus. So uh-huh. in, in the Ethernet, there is a corn chapter that exists. Yeah. Um, but it really wasn't hard. I mean, this is a dream come true to be able to deep dive into a vegetable and think about all the different ways you could use them. Yeah. Um, normally in, you know, all my previous books, obviously, are all vegetarian, so they're all vegetable heavy. Right. But they're kind of interspersed between, you know, other themed chapters. But to just write a, a um, for example, you know, the book kicks off with Asian greens. Mm-hmm. And I've, I've dreamt about writing about Asian greens um, for, for a long time, like just to, to deep dive into that. And it's a bit of a cheat chapter because there's many types of Asian greens. Sure. But I kind of have always categorized them together in my head because I guess maybe from an accessibility point of view, you want people to be, if they can't get Chinese broccoli, to use baby bok choy, which might be easier to get wherever you live. Right. Um, but for me, it's to, to show the world that how these greens can be prepared um, outside of just a, a stir fry or steaming. Um, you can put them on the barbecue. You can char grill mm-hmm. them. You can roast them. You can, you know, marinate them in something. You can put them in a galette. Um, there's so much more that we can do with Asian greens. And I, I think that kind of more applies to all the vegetable chapters. Mm-hmm. You know, I just really wanted to give people like this sense of almost like unleash them. You know, I think yeah. when it comes to vegetables, and I don't know if you would agree, I feel like people, have like almost handcuffs on, like certain vegetables have to be cooked a certain way and you can't, they have to be treated a certain way. Some have to be raw, some have to be boiled and only certain ones can be roasted. Right. And it's like, I just want to, you know, really just take off those shackles and let people, give people the license to go crazy, you know, with vegetables and to try everything and, you know, just surprise yourself be creative and so the asian greens chapter has a lot of that in there and Uh that really leads on to all the other chapters that also have a lot of creative and and outside of the box ways of using vegetables and i don't do this um to be like i don't want I'm not, I'm not doing this so it goes viral or anything. Right. Like, I'm not creating a, you know, choice some galette for it to be viral. But sure. it's, A, you know, it's a different idea. But B, it's kind of the way I cook. You know, it's very much like I use what I have in my f- fridge. And that's really the way these recipes came together. Yeah. Which is a really fascinating thing. Um, I would often just say, hey, what's in the fridge? Oh, there's broccoli. What am I going to cook? And if it turned into something that I thought is great, I would include it in the book. Um, so it's not only vegetable-led, but it's very much um, pantry-led too. So yeah. like using what you have in your pantry, arming yourself with all the things, all the ingredients that you need to create really flavorful food on a daily basis. Yeah. And I think when you cook through this book, you kind of, you'll gradually learn what those 
you know, what those um, weapons are sure. in your pantry. But, um, yeah, just I wanted to touch back on the, the 22 vegetables. Um, it did come quite naturally to me. I did. I never really wrote a list down. I just kind of went for it. Uh-huh. And, um, you know, there's a couple of vegetables in there that people might not think of every day, um, like the taro chapter, uh-huh. I think, has raised a lot of eyebrows and really? people are interested in that. But I think what I wanted to do, and like seaweed, there's also a seaweed right. chapter. Yeah. For a long time, I've wanted people to use seaweed. People say to me, oh, I don't know what to do with it. Yeah, or so, people don't think of it as a vegetable. No. No. It's a sea it's vegetable. Like a, a little condiment, right? Exactly. Like it's nori or something. Yeah, nori, right? or you put on top of rice. <laughs> exactly, yeah. And you can absolutely do that because it's, you know, nutritionally very dense. Yeah. But it's um you can you can use it for so much because, you know, it is the, the original source of umami. So that's telling you mm. the type of flavor you can get out of it. And just having the dried, you don't have to, you know, go out of your way to source the fresh stuff from the sea, but right. just the dried. I have a whole box of different types of seaweed in my pantry. I love it. And it's just stuff that I've collected over the years and yeah. it keeps for, you know, forever. Yeah. And you can just rehydrate and um, there's a lovely burnt butter, um, brown butter pasta with dulse, which yes, is like yeah. super umami. You kind of make this kind of compound butter with the dulse. Um, but you can use really any seaweed you have. and. Just showing people different ways of building it into a dish that's very familiar to them. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in terms of the taro, it's something that I love. My mum loves taro. I grew up eating taro. And I really wanted to present these vegetables from my point of view, which is as my point of view is I'm a Chinese Australian girl that now lives in America. Sure. And to have all those influences in the vegetables felt important. Yeah. Because um, often vegetable books are not written by people like me, by mm. people who look like me, and my approach to vegetables is very different. Yeah, I acknowledge that yeah. it is. You know, my approach is laced in everything that I am and everything that I've seen in my life and all the flavors that I've eaten, and I really want to present that in this book. Yeah, you know, and it's a really I feel like it's an important perspective um, to have that's different to. All the other vegetable books that have ever been written that are based on seasonality. Yeah, I think um, so. Yeah. And seasonality, you you address in the book too, right? Yes. I mean, when you're when you're talking about handcuffs people have with vegetables, and yeah. and your your goal being to liberate home cooks to be yeah. free and create, you write that seasonality is a luxury and is yeah. not always practical, and, yeah. and that that maybe is a handicap some people have when they want to approach more vegetable focused cooking, right? They feel yeah. a need to focus on the seasonal. Yeah. I think that is it's one of the things that holds people back yeah. the most. Um in terms of people actually having more vegetables in their life and actually eating it daily mm-hmm. um as part of their meals, I think it holds people back because the food industry has told people you can only eat seasonally and locally. And if you don't, then there's something wrong with you. Right. And um honestly, like in my life I ate seasonally for 15 years and then we had to make do with what we could get. Sure. And that means going to your supermarket. Um, and this is like pandemic, right? That's Is that the point you're referencing? Um, I'm actually like referencing my childhood. Like, I see. You know, okay. eating, oh, like, sure. like I ate for- seasonally for 15 years and then my mum had to go to the local grocer. Right, right. On our, on, you know, on the, on our, in our neighborhood and buy like, bags of three apples and right. a bag of potatoes and these are things that mm-hmm. she never had to do. Yeah. Um, but that's how people live. Yeah. You know, and people shopping from the supermarket, it's not glamorous or sexy. It's not a farmer's market. Um, but it's practical and it's accessible and it's 
in many cases less expensive. And it's the way people live. It's the way I live. And mm-hmm. I live in Brooklyn. I live, you know, I've, <laughs> sure. got, I've got two farmer's markets that are, you know, near me, near my house on the weekends. I belong to a CSA. Yeah. It's great. And I absolutely prescribe supporting farmers when you can. But if you can't, it's actually more important to eat vegetables yeah. than it is to forego that and say, well, I can't get, you know, I'm, I, or it's January and I'm sick of eating um, parsnips right. or rutabaga, so I'm just not going to eat a vegetable at all. Right. I mean, I think that's what a lot of people actually do. Yeah, And I think that, you know, vegetable consumption is not the where it should be in this country or anywhere in the world probably. Um, and so I'm just really encouraging people just to take away the shackles mm-hmm. and give themselves the freedom to you know, eat a tomato in, in January if sure. you want to. Sure. If you're, you've, you know, and I need it. Like I need that often like in January or February, I'm needing that. Well, I'm talking to about East Coast right. here. <laughs> <laughs> right. A little different in California. Yeah, a little different yeah. in California. <laughs> but, you know, if you're sometimes you just need that yeah. sense. Like I'm really craving something like really lively and a little bit acidic and, yeah. you know, you just, just do it. I mean, yeah. it's so that's why I didn't. I think it's probably one of the very few vegetable books that are written that's not based on seasonality. Right. Um, I really just wanted to take that equation out and say, look, if you can, yes. Like I know a lot of people are cooking like from the turnip chapter right now because in New York it's all about the turnips and the radishes. Uh-huh. Um, but if you can't, you know, it's just right. go to your supermarket and right. Yeah, you know, there are some vegetables to to me that defy seasonality, like uh, broccoli and cauliflower. Sure. I don't think they belong to a season. Of sure. course there is a season. Right, right. But I, we have to eat those all year round in yeah. our house. Like kale, I will eat. Like people think I'm joking when I say this, <laughs> but when I'm at home, I will eat kale every single day because yeah. I'm very, very obsessed with it. I love the different ways you can use it. My kids like it. Um, I love how robust the leaves are mm-hmm. and you can do, you can either massage it or cook it and yeah. you can blitz it up into something, but it's to us like our, very much our everyday greens. So. Yeah. I can't wait to try your kale salad recipe that I know you have a little trick you uh, learned from Lucas Volger yeah. in, in one of his cookbooks yes. about massaging the kale with avocado, with like avocado, massage it together, yes. and it sort of becomes adds creamy. a little greasiness yeah. to the well, greasiness. It's not a very attractive word, yeah. right? But it sort of some of the oil from the avocado sort of makes exactly. the kale creamier. It as makes you say. it creamy. It's so incredible. I gotta and try that. Actually, that is the basis of what I eat almost every is day. It? Okay. I, I become yeah. like now because I haven't been at home for a few days. I'm feeling like I really want a kale salad. Yeah. Um, but it's a fantastic recipe. Like I, um, it's from Lucas's book, Start Simple. I mm-hmm. believe. Yeah, start simple. Um, and I, yeah, you massage the the kale with uh, avocado, and then you can add like sesame oil, and I use that as a canvas. So I'll put like what other things that I have in the fridge. So sure. I often will have like pan fried tofu in the fridge. If I have some leftover legumes, um, sure. crispy chickpeas. And so that sesame-infused kale salad that's in the kale chapter is like my basis for yeah. many, many meals, actually. Yeah, I love that. Um, I wish we had like endless hours. You could see the list of recipes oh, alone. I oh would love to talk to you about. But <laughs> I, I got when you talk about sort of these creative approaches to recipes and using vegetables in what for some people might be an unexpected way, like you have a recipe for 
Brussels sprouts that basically treats them like an egg salad. They, mm. they stand in for the egg, right? Yes, yes. yes. So fascinating. Or you do a, a broccoli, which I think is maybe your favorite vegetable. Yes, broccoli. it is. Okay. I talk about broccoli a lot. Yes. You do a, a Reuben salad yes. with the flavors of a Reuben, right? But it's charred broccoli. So that, good. That is the center of it. Yeah. Um, or even something like a cabbage carbonara-ish. Mm-hmm. Carbonara-ish, ish. right? You have to um, add the ish in. The, the ish, yes. Because then people will come for you. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> it's not a carbonara. How dare you? Um, but how do you sort of approach recipes like that, that are they're really, really interesting takes on sort of classic dishes, but that put vegetables at the center? Yeah. I mean, I think that um, I'm, I'm a hungry person, so I like to eat. Mm-hmm. Um, and often they're inspirations from things that I've tasted before or just uh, curiosity, like I'm a really curious person about like how could I turn something like this into a dish that I would eat yeah, and whether that would be A, being vegetarian or B, being vegetable focused. Um, I'm always trying to like latch onto that when yeah. I see things in the world. So for example, the broccoli Reuben is inspired by a sandwich at a deli in New York called Court Street Grocers. I used to live mm-hmm. around the corner. And obviously, I've never tasted a real Reuben before right. because I'd never had it before. I became vegetarian. But right. that itself had all those kind of interesting, like the sauerkraut and the, yeah. the um, it was on like a rye rye bread. Yeah. So in the, the recipe in Tender Heart, I use like rye croutons yeah. to get that taste. It, to me, it tastes almost spot on with that sandwich. Okay. And people love that sandwich yeah. as a Reuben, as a v- vegan take on Reuben. Right. Um, so it's great. And in terms of the, the Brussels sprouts egg salad, yeah. Brussels, I think it's called Brussels sprouts instead of egg salad. Yes. Um, someone asked me and said, almost like offended and said, why would you do that to an egg salad? Like it's perfect. An egg salad is just perfect. You don't need to do anything. And I was like, it's actually, I love egg salad. It's got nothing to do with the fact I don't love an egg salad. Right. But it's actually a curiosity about taking the flavors of an egg salad. Which are kind of brilliant, mm-hmm. you know. There's a bit of pickles, yeah. um, a bit of dill, and right. like that's how I like it. And, right. Yeah. And that creaminess of um, a mayo or a vegan mayo, and applying that to a vegetable, and just seeing where that would take you, and it, the results you get are so interesting and thought provoking in a way. And yeah. it just, for me, it just satisfies my curiosity about the world. Um, yeah, so like that that itself is just like, wow, I can have the flavor of an egg salad, but it's it's like packed with Brussels sprouts, mm-hmm. which to me is so satisfying. Yeah. It is so satisfying to eat that volume of vegetables. Sure. And I think that's where right. it comes back down to. It's like, I love eating a lot of vegetables. Is like I can, if I finish like something that's very vegetable dense, I just feel so satisfied. Like yeah. I just, I love that. And it also like, it, brings different flavors in too. You know, an egg is an egg, but Brussels sprouts has that mustardy undertones. Right. It has, you know, like that, a little bit of bitterness. Right. And it's bringing more. So to me, it's like always more. I'm not taking anything away. I'm actually adding more to that profile. I love that. Do you get flack for things like a carbonara-ish or like you have an eggplant katsu that looks Mm -hmm. incredible, which is, you know, flavors of a, like a, a pork tonkatsu sort of yeah a japanese katsu yeah. but with eggplant yes. as, as the base do you get flack for for doing things like that for that much no. actually and i think it's because i'm i'm actually vegetarian i mean because i am actually vegetarian and i've been a vegetarian a long time yeah 
And I think that I always try and be respectful of where things have come from. And I talked about this last night at Omnivores, at my talk um, about the importance of headnotes. Yeah. And actually talking about, to me, like, I don't understand anyone writing a recipe without a headnote. Because to me, it's like writing a story without characters, Uh you know, like where, what's the context? Um, What is, where does this come from? Why did you do it? Yeah. And there's always a reason why I've done something. Um, there is an interest, a curiosity, like like I talked about, and your head notes is where you should put that yeah. because that's what makes your in, your recipe more interesting, actually. Um, but yeah, I don't, I haven't really experienced. I'm always try, I always try to be respectful of where food comes from because to me that's a really important part of why I do this sure. is to discover. But also as a as a as a from a practical point of view, as a vegetarian. I don't want to miss out on flavors yeah. or dishes. Right. Um, so I'm always, I, I'm almost doing this as a favor to myself, you know, yeah. to give myself these dishes that yeah. I want to explore and I want to explore those flavors, but I can't eat the real thing. So. Yeah. I love that that's the impetus yeah. to, to do it for yourself. So yeah. you're not missing out. It's great. And head notes can do so much, right? Yeah. I mean, head yeah. notes can tell the context of the inspiration it can give you context on how the dish should come together right they are just so integral and i think often overlooked yeah i think so i've i've seen a few cooks lately without head notes and to me i kind of feel like we need i mean i think often people will ask me and i know this is veering on other territory but in terms of like recipe writing in general and um how we can get to a point where everyone can kind of write about the recipes that they want to i think we yeah. should absolutely get to that point that's where headnotes comes in. Like, why is it special to you? Right. Like, almost every recipe I develop will come from a source. Right. Will come from a memory, a personal experience, um, a friend who has told me about something or something that we've experienced together. And to me, recipes um, are about keeping memories alive and and having that jolt for myself about, um, hey, that was a really fun holiday somewhere and. You know, I recently went to Montreal with my oldest. Um, we were looking at colleges, actually. Okay. And you know, we ate, I ate poutine, uh-huh. and I'm like, for the first time, it was a veg, it was a vegan f- poutine, uh-huh. a vegetarian poutine. Okay. And I thought, how can I turn that into a salad? Sorry, yeah. people are probably <laughs> Canadians. Uh, you know, <laughs> writing me off right, <laughs> right. now. <laughs> but to me, it was um a really beautiful experience that I had. It was a really nice few days, and yeah. you know, it's a. To me, it's often like capturing that memory in a dish. Yeah. So for me, and it's I know that's not the way for everyone, but for me, that's why that's the source of a lot of my recipes. And that's why headnotes are important. Sure. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Well, last question before we end with our little game. I know we've we've had you on the show before, so I mm-hmm. think we've talked about um, cookbooks that have been meaningful to you in your career. But I always like to ask our return guests, like who are you, who are you watching, or who are you reading right now? Are there cookbooks or other cookbook oh. authors that are sort of in this modern canon of books out recently that have been exciting to you? Oh man, I get a lot of cookbooks sent sure. to me. Yes. Um, what if I? I'm going to go blank on what I've been cooking from. So I just picked up um, Vietnamese vegetarian Vietnamese by Yuen Lu. Okay, right before I came, she's a British chef. Okay, um, and we talk sometimes on social media, and I picked up her book, and it, it looks fantastic. Okay, um, what else have I been cooking from? Remind me what else has come out. I feel like there's been a lot. There's been a lot. I there's get been a lot too. there's been a lot. I mean, I always go back to my. Um, I recently actually 
put together a new collection of Nigella Lawson books, okay, um, which are old books that all from the same design. Okay, you know, that's oh, yeah. my geeky, like having the same um, right. imprint and right. same the, the same de- book book design. Right, um, she had a collection of them that they put out, and so I went on all these old sites and collected them all. So it's Nigella's Feast, you know, yes, Nigella Express, yeah. all those old ones. Yeah. And her books are very evergreen to me. It, absolutely, yeah. Yeah, they kind of um, are still relevant to this She's day. an evangelist for frozen peas like you are, too. Uh, uh, she is, isn't she? Is. She? she was our very first guest on Salt and oh, Spine and five years ago now, and we talked about frozen peas and yes. how, how much um, she relies on them in her cooking. Yeah. yeah, which I do, too. Yeah. And I talk about that in the book, saying that my confession in the book is like, I actually like frozen peas more than fresh. Yeah. They're one of those things that, that they do well frozen. So. Yeah. 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 Oh, God. I'm trying to remember more cookbooks, Brian. Um, what else has come out? I just got um, Love Japan in the mail. Uh-huh. Um, and that looks very promising. I love Japanese food. Yeah. And I think there's so much um, depth from Japanese food that we can still explore. So sure. I'm excited yeah. to, to get into that. Yeah. Um, those yeah. are great. Yeah. Well, we, we always end with a little game. So I thought today's game we would call the Vegetable Whisperer. Oh, exciting. Um, we're going to put you to the test a little bit. And so what we're going to do is um, I'm going to open to your chapter list. Okay. <laughs> okay. So we're going to pick a vegetable that, that you have featured in Tender Heart. Okay. And then you can draw some additional cards here, and that'll give you more ingredients to work with and tell us how you might take, you know, broccoli and a collection of other ingredients and turn it into a, a heady dish. Okay. How does that sound? Sounds great. Okay, so... Um, what are you going to choose? Are you going to choose the vegetable? I'm going to choose the, the vegetable here, and then you can choose one from each of these decks, and okay. that'll be what you have to work with. Cool. So why don't we start, actually, with um, seaweed? Oh, okay. Amazing. I, I love the seaweed chapter. So we're going protein. I've got some beans. Okay. I've got corn. Got oh cilantro. Mm. This is easy, isn't it? <laughs> and, oh, and the wild card. Oh my god! Oh, is what? Oh, it's matzo. Okay. I've never used matzo before. Never used matzo. Do you want to draw another one then? No, we can do it. Okay. Um, I feel like I'm doing. Oh, this will you know Lucas Lucas's book, um, the the veggie burger book. Oh yeah, I should just, have mentioned the yeah, veggie burger just book. Yeah, released it, right? Yes, yeah. it's a re-release, yeah. and that is actually one I've been cooking from, okay. and I actually wrote about it in my newsletter. Um, it's cool because I'm not a veggie burger fan. Right. And I just loved actually making a veggie burger from scratch. Right. Uh, and it actually, like, I'm going to cook from that book a lot. So put that in. L- Lucas Volga's re- reissued, reissued, reissued yeah. veggie burger <laughs> yes, book. It's okay. been, it's been a, a, something I've been using in the kitchen, but using that book as inspiration, I'm going to go a veggie. A veg- veggie burger, veggie patty. burger. Okay, so oh, yeah, because you've matzo, got the matzo, you can right. do that, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I've seen, I've seen Molly A do it. Yes, she, yeah. you know, you soak the matzo, and then we can add some cilantro, cor- some corn, sweet corn, nice, yeah, some beans. Uh-huh. That's going to be your binder, right? Yeah. And then your seaweed. I'm going to soak up some um, kelp, and then just okay, uh, you know. That goes Cut into it. the patty too. Yes, as yeah. your umami, because oh, there's, yeah, there's a sure. brilliant Ooh, brand yeah. actually of seaweed, veggie seaweed burgers. I can't remember the name of the brand, okay, but you can buy it, and it's actually one of 
the most delicious veggie burgers on the market. Wow. Oh, that's so great. Yeah. yeah. You get the umami there. You have the bean. Yeah. Like, oh, the this matzo is, to This bind. is so fun. That's nice. Okay, yeah. let's let's try one more. I feel like I cheated with that. that I know you so got easy. a really easy one, right? <laughs> the matzo, I thought, did was going to throw me off, actually. Let's go celery this time. Oh, my God. I know you, yes. you write that you think about celery more than you should, yeah. and, and you get defensive about it because you don't think it gets the love that it needs. I also love celery. Yeah. So. Let's go celery this time okay. and, and see what else we've got. Cool. So, oh, tofu. Okay, tofu. Okay. Onion. Uh-huh. Mustard. Mm. Okay, white truffle butter. Ooh. So, I feel like, what would we do? This is, the white truffle butter is, I'm feeling like you could add that with the mu- mustard into like some sort of compound butter. Oh, okay, sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, not sure that would go. Yeah. Well, but, we don't um, actually have to eat it. We're just imagining. <laughs> We're just taking a look at your creative process. Okay. So. <laughs> and so I'm going to go some ramen noodles. Ah. I'm going to go ramen noodles, but used not in a typically Chinese way. I mean, the tofu is, you know, I'm going to crumble that up. Yeah. It's an extra firm tofu. Okay. I'm going to crumble that up and pan fry it with the onions. So it becomes like this nice textural emo- emotion yeah um, but it's still it's still um solid yeah and then it almost becomes like um not that i, I don't like replicating meat but it almost becomes like ground pork okay mm-hmm. and sure. then i'm going to put can... that through noodles with this um mustardy white truffle butter uh-huh could be gross but i like it you know you know where i'm going with uh-huh. this it's yes. kind of like uh-huh I... fusiony right right yeah i like it and then the celery the celery goes on top uh, the celery will be or, or folded into yeah the noodles folded as well. into the noodles yeah. as well. Oh, very nice, yeah. just sort of shaved. Yep, thinly. really thin. Yeah, and Some like not cooked too much. Yeah, like I like I like generally like my celery like a little bit on yeah. the crunchy side. Cooked at all, or would you just shave it and sort of? Toss I would cook it, it a little end. bit, just yeah. a little. Okay, yeah, like yeah. a little, a little, yeah. just a little flutter, just to take away that. Um, rawness sure sure i love it well thank you so much hedy for playing the the game and for joining us here on salt and spine it was so great to have you back this was fun brian thanks for having me and that's our show for today thank you so much for listening as always you can find bonus content from today's show and all of our episodes on our website saltandspine.com if you like hearing from your favorite authors on salt and spine and i hope you do please click subscribe to this podcast wherever you're listening we also love to see your ratings on apple podcasts our show today was produced by me brian hogan stewart and our producer cleo worster our kitchen correspondent is sarah varney and the salt and spine original theme song was created by brunch for lunch salt and spine is typically recorded at the civic kitchen in san francisco's mission district the civic kitchen offers digital and in-person classes for home cooks and you can find out more at civickitchensf.com thanks as always to jen nurse chris bonimo and the civic kitchen team and to our friend celia sack at omnivore books we'll be back next week with more stories behind the cookbooks you love Thank you.